I want to teach you a Hebrew phrase this morning, and for some of you this will be a review because you've heard it before. It's a phrase that I thought might be the most helpful when we were getting ready to get on the plane and an airport in New Jersey to go to Tel Aviv on our Holy Land tour in Israel. And just before we were getting ready to board the plane, uh, we had that long layover in New Jersey, and one of the men in our group said, Pastor, would you teach me some Hebrew before we go to Israel? And he said, I want you to teach me something that would be useful. And so I told him, repeat after me, Zelo Ashmati. Let's all try it. Some of you have heard this before. Zelo Ashmati. Zelo Ashmati. And after the man in our group did a pretty good job of pronouncing it, and we even got a little help from a Jewish man who was sitting near us, and he had a large smile on his face the whole time I was trying to teach them this, and he really seemed to enjoy the exercise greatly. And finally, the man in our group said, well, well what does Zelo Ashmati mean? Anybody remember? If you remember, it's not my fault. <laughs> It's not my fault. I can't think of a better phrase to, to learn when you're going to a foreign country where the, the norms are different, the culture is different, and, and who knows what trouble we might get into. Now, if there is something that is not my fault, there is nothing wrong with trying to defend oneself, like convincing the insurance company that you are not at fault or, or something else like that. Amen. But it's a whole other matter when we refuse to accept responsibility for what we've really done, or excusing ourselves by saying, well, that's just the way I am, or that's just the way I was raised, or that's just the way, whatever excuse we might find, or, or maybe the worst is, well, that's the way God made me. And that's what we run into when we come to Romans chapter 9. Look at verse 18 again, the 18th verse of Romans chapter 9. After God says he raised up Pharaoh to demonstrate his power, that his name might be proclaimed in the whole world. He says, so then God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now the issue in these verses, in verses 18 through 24, is that if God has mercy on whom he desires, and if he hardens whom he desires, then why does he still find fault with us? Why would it be my fault for what I have done when I cannot resist his will? And the Apostle Paul is picturing his readers asking these kind of questions at this point, and the first question would be this, then why does God still blame us? If God is the Lord of history... If mercy and hardening alike cause his name and his might to be proclaimed throughout the earth, if he shows mercy on whom he wills and hardens whom he wills according to his predetermined plan, his predetermined purposes, then how can anybody else possibly be blamed for what God does? Hasn't the one who is hardened simply doing what God willed him to do? And that's the second question here. Who can resist his will? We might want to get some really good answers from God's word for these questions. But God's response to these questions is to rebuke the questioner. We see that in verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? 
Paul anticipated the questions that his reader might ask, but he does not answer the questions. He argues that they're illegitimate questions. There are questions that the creature doesn't have a right to ask of the creator, and that's because the questions come from a limited carnal mind that has a carnal response. It's a, it's a, it's a response that comes from human reasoning and human reasoning alone that wants to excuse itself. The questions imply that, well, we're nothing but puppets and, and God's holding all the strings. If we're nothing but victims of divine choice, then how can God blame us for anything? If, if God hardens me, if he hardens me, how can he send me to eternal hell when he hardened me? How can he blame me? How can he condemn me? If I'm the way I am because of a divine decree from God, who has ever been able to resist his will? That is, if God wills that I should be hardened, if God wills that I should be saved, then who resists that? If his will alone is that determinate and his will is irresistible relative to who is saved and who is lost, how can I be held responsible? How could God blame the victim of his sovereignty? And God's response is basically, how dare you ask the question? Because it impugns the nature and character of God. In fact, Paul's response is emphatic. The phrase, oh man, comes first in the sentence. That makes it emphatic in the Greek grammar and structure. Oh man, who are you to talk back to God? That's a hard question, but God's answer is, man, shut up. Verse 20 again. On the contrary, who are you, oh man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make the same lump, one vessel of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and one for, for common use? This analogy of the potter and the clay is used often in God's word. We see it in Jeremiah. We see it in, in Isaiah. And I want to take you in, in God's word back to its use in the book of Isaiah in particular. Turn to the words of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 29, the 13th verse. The 29th chapter of Isaiah, the 13th verse, page 868 in the small Bibles, page 982 in the larger one. The first two examples of the potter and the clay in Isaiah are extremely negative in that the name of God is being impugned, his character is being impugned, that and man is setting himself up above God. In Isaiah chapter 29, we see that God's people are questioning God. They're impugning him because they think they know better. Their human reasoning, their human understanding, their carnal understanding, and their plans are superior to God's. And so in verse 13 of Isaiah chapter 9, we read the familiar words that Jesus also applied to the hypocrites of his day. He applied these to the Pharisees. The 13th verse, the Lord said, Because this people draw near me with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. And then God is going to reveal how he's going to deal with these people, and he uses the same Hebrew word three times for emphasis. And in the word in the Hebrew is Paula, P-A-L-A, -A, Paula. Now you've got some more to put in your Hebrew file cabinet for use someday. The word Paula means 
surpassing or something extraordinary. In the New American Standard Bible, it's translated marvelously and wondrously here. In the English Standard Version, it's translated wonder, the idea that it's wondrous. But it's not marvelous, it's not surpassing extraordinary in a positive way. People will marvel at it, but we're going to see the tragedy is, is, there is a tragedy here. Uh, Verse 14 here. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous. God will deal Paula extraordinarily, wondrously. Then he says, Paula, Paula. God will deal Paula with these people, Paula, Paula. And how does God do that? Verse 14 continues, And the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. The marvelous Paula, Paula, Paula to the third power. That's as strong as you can make it in the Hebrew language. The wonder here is that God is going to take all a man's wisdom, all a man's understanding of things, all his human reasoning and his discernment, and he's going to conceal it where no one can find it. (laughs) They're not even going to find it. And so God pronounces woes upon them, just like Jesus did upon the hypocritical Pharisees of his day. Verse 15, Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord, and whose deeds are done in a dark place, and they say, who sees it? Or who knows us? And then God is going to say, you are so messed up in your puny thinking that you have all these things backwards. Verse 16, you turn things around. Then our illustration. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay that what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me. Or what is formed say to him who formed it? He has no understanding. This is blasphemous. It accuses God of not understanding. It claims that God is equal or that man is equal or better than God in his, his plans and his discernment. It's as if man, and I borrowed this from John MacArthur, see if I can get it out here with my tongue twister. It's as if man with his infinitesimal puny pea brain, with his thumble full of information which is concealed so he can't even find it, compared to the vastness of the eternal mind as big as the universe, accuses God of having no understanding. Yet man persists to argue with God. So turn over to the 45th chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5, or 45, verse 9, the ninth verse of the 45th chapter of Isaiah. And here we see the the maker in the clay once more. And once again, the people of God are arguing with God, and God once again pronounces woe upon them. The oracle of doom. There's the oracle of blessing in the Bible. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are our people. That's the oracle of blessing. Woe is the oracle of doom. You remember that in the the last days, in the book of Revelation, as as God is pouring out his wrath, the angel of heaven comes and goes, whoa, 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 you're doomed. And so we could say in verse 9, doomed is the one who quarrels or argues with his maker. An earthenware, earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, He has no hands. When the one who is made argues with God and questions what God is doing in this regard, it's it's like accusing God of having no hands. 
that God can't do anything or that God's hands have nothing to do with me. And incidentally, isn't that exactly what the theory of evolution has done? What the evolutionists do? It accuses Christians of worshiping a God who can't do anything, a God who has no hands and can't do anything because he doesn't exist. Evolutionists claim to have it all figured out, or they're going to figure it out. They have taken their thimble full of pea brain understanding of the universe, which they cannot even fully understand, and claim that they know better than the creator of the universe. We saw that in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 last week, and I want to read just before what we read last week, Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. The 18th verse of the first chapter of Romans in the introduction to this great letter. Verse 18 of chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, what? Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor God, him as God, or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. But I want us to see one more reference to the potter and the clay in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 8. Because in Isaiah chapter 50, or 64, excuse me, 64, verse 8, we see the proper attitude that we, as the clay, are to have. The 64th chapter of Isaiah, the prophet has been praising God for all the awesome things that he has done. How the mountains quake in God's presence. How God acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. How God has delivered us from our sin. And and what should our proper response be as the clay? In humble submission to God. We see this in in verse 8 of Isaiah 64. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. And all of us are the work of God of your hand. All of us are the work of your hand. So let's go back to Romans chapter 9, verse 21. The 29th, or the, the, 20, the ninth chapter of the 21st verse. We have seen God's rebuke. Those who had questioned God's character are rebuked. And now we see God's right. God has a right to do whatever he wants. Verse 21 of of this ninth chapter of Romans. Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Does not the potter have the right? And the analogy is obvious here. A potter makes choices. The clay has no part in it. The potter has the power to do whatever he wants. He has the right to do whatever he wants. So it's a a question of right. It's a question of ability. God is the potter. We are the clay. He has the right to do whatever he wants. He has the ability to do whatever he wants. He's like the potter with the clay, and he makes vessels as he chooses. A potter can make a beautiful dish, 
or he can make a trash barrel. It would be his choice. God makes one for honor. He makes one for common use. So I want to read something about this from John MacArthur because he explains something important in this regard. And MacArthur says, you'll notice verse 21, he has power. That's exousia, authority. That's the right to do something. But he continues, now I don't believe, and you must listen carefully to this, this is going to unfold in marvelous terms. I do not believe that God claims the right to create sinful, damnable creatures in order to punish them. I do not believe that the Bible teaches that God creates occupants for hell. I believe the Bible clearly says out of the Lord himself that hell was created for the devil and his angels. God is not claiming the right to create damnable creatures in order to damn them, but he is claiming his right to deal with creatures who are sinful already, as he wills. He pardons or punishes as he sees fit. He doesn't make men sinners, but he chooses the disposition of men who are sinners. God is not responsible that men are sinners. Scriptures make that very clear. If you have forgotten, you need to reread James 1.13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth any man. God doesn't create evil. God is of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look upon iniquity. When God made everything, he made everything, looked at it and said, what? It is good. But God reserves the right to do with already sinful creatures that which his own will desires. So we've seen God's rebuke. We've seen God's right to do this. Now we come to God's reason. Why does God have mercy on whom he desires and why does God harden whom he desires? We have no right to ask the question. We have no claim on God at all, but God graciously gives us a profound answer in verse 22 of Romans chapter 9, even if it's not the answer we want. The 22nd verse of Romans chapter 9. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. I, I entitled this an astounding display of God's glory. Now we come to the glory from a very interesting place. And here, I believe, is the deepest argument in the Bible. Anywhere we search in Scripture, why would our sovereign God, why does he have the right to unconditionally choose whom to love, such as Jacob, and to choose whom to hate, such as Esau? Remember, we started this section of Scripture in Romans chapter 9, where God says in verse 13, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. And God goes, it had nothing to do with Jacob and Esau, what they did and what they were going to do. Just God chose just because he chose. And Verses 22 and 23 show us why God has the right to show mercy to whom he shows mercy and the right to harden whom he hardens, such as Pharaoh was the example. And whom to make for a vessel of honor and whom to make for a vessel for dishonor. And the deepest, most profound reason that this is right, this is right for God to do this, 
as that it because it displays most fully the glory of God. It displays most fully the glory of God, including his wrath against sin. And it shows or displays his power in judgment so that vessels of mercy can know him most completely. We'll keep talking about this. I know this is, this is deep. As vessels of God's mercy, as, as we are vessels of God's mercy upon whom God has poured in his mercy and used for his merciful purposes, we more fully know God, we more fully see his glory because he pours his wrath against sin. And we're able to worship him with the greatest intensity for all eternity. God does this to make known the riches of his glory upon mercy or upon vessels of mercy. In other words, God showed his wrath and power when he raised up Pharaoh. And God endured with patience, as it will, his rebellion through the ten plagues. God desired to display his power so that his power, his might, and his name would be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. That is why God dealt with Pharaoh the way he did. It could have been all over in the very first plague, right? God could have wiped out all the Egyptians, everything that they had except their riches, and said, okay, Israelites, you're free to go. Just take all the spoils and the goods and, and, and get, get out of here. But that wouldn't have shown God's power and displayed his glory as God desired. After each plague, when Pharaoh hardened his heart, God firmed up his heart even more. And God again showed his power, displayed his glory. The more Pharaoh hardened, the more glory for God. Pharaoh hardened his heart. There was another plague. God received more glory for what he had done. Glory, power, hardening, glory, power, until it was to the ultimate. So what if, verse 22 of Romans chapter 9, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patient vessels of wrath? We wonder, why are people today getting away with all their evil they're doing? Why, God, why don't you do something right now? Why don't you stop those terrorist attacks? Why don't you fix this or do this and protect these people and what God is saying, he's enduring this because one day he will display his wrath with power that will display his name throughout all the earth. What if God designed to show his wrath and to make known has endured much patient vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So first of all, God acts to show his wrath against sin. God acts that he to show that he is a holy God who hates sin. God must do this. If he did not act against sin, he would not be holy. And second, God acts to show his power in judgment. And thirdly, all of this self-revelation of God's wrath against sin and his power in judgment is to make known the riches of his glory. In other words, the final and deepest argument Paul gives for why God acts in sovereign freedom is that this way of acting displays most fully the glory of God, including his wrath against sin 
His power and judgment. So that the vessels of mercy, that is, those of us who have received God's mercy, can know Him most completely and worship Him with the greatest intensity for all eternity. In God's hardening, in God's powerful judgment of sin and His wrath, God displays His glory, He displays His power, He displays His holiness in a way that we would have never seen otherwise. Think of it this way. God wants to display all the aspects of His glory, right? All the aspects. And there are aspects related to His holiness and His response to sin that we would never see apart from God hardening sinners in His wrath against sin. While reading a sermon by John Piper, I came across a quotation from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is the great preacher of the, the Great Awakening. And I mentioned one time that I downloaded all of Jonathan Edwards' works to my, my Kindle one time, and it turned out to be 26,000 pages <laughs> of John Edwards' writing. And so, so I have to give John Piper credit for even finding this, this quote, <laughs> because it's, it's a marvelous quote. Because Edwards really helps us understand the question of why a good and holy God would decree that there be hardening and that there'd be evil. It helps us understand it. And, of course, he lived in the mid-18th century, so these are not the words we may use, but I, I trust that you'll understand what Edwards is saying here. <clears throat> he says, It is a proper and excellent thing for infinite glory to shine forth. And for the same reason, it is, a pro it is proper that the shining forth of God's glory should be complete. That is, that all parts of his glory should shine forth. And that every beauty should be proportionally, and then he used the word effulgent. Anybody want to give that one a shot? No. It means radiance. It's better than radiance. It's, it's, it's glory and, and glowing in a way that is just tremendous. That every beauty be proportionally radiant. That the beholder may have a proper notion of God. It is not proper that one glory should be exceedingly manifested and another not at all. Thus it is necessary that God's awful majesty, his authority, and dreadful greatness, justice, and holiness should be manifested. But this could not be unless sin and punishment had been decreed, so that the shining forth of God's glory would be very imperfect, both because these parts of divine glory would not shine forth as the others do, and also the glory of his goodness, love, and holiness would be faint without them. Nay, they could scarcely shine forth at all. If it were not right that God should decree and permit and punish sin, there would be no manifestation of God's holiness and hatred of sin, or in showing any preference in his providence of godliness before it. There would be no manifestation of God's grace or true goodness if there was no sin to be pardoned, no misery to be saved from. How much happiness soever he bestowed, his goodness would not be so much prized and admired in the sense of it not so great. So evil is necessary in order to the hap highest happiness of the creature. Let me say that again. So evil is necessary in order to the highest happiness of the creature and the completeness of that communication of God for which he made the world. Because the creature's happiness consists in the knowledge of God and the sense of his love. 
And if the knowledge of him be imperfect, the happiness of the creature must be proportionately imperfect. Does that answer all our questions? Not at all. But why does the potter make one lump as a vessel for dishonor and another lump a vessel for mercy? I don't know. Because I'm not God. And all of that is in the heart and the hands of God. But we do know whether it's a vessel of mercy or it's a vessel of wrath. In all things, God is glorified. Because he is displaying himself. And in that we can take comfort. These terrorists aren't going to get away with it forever, are they? The evil that is done in our world, it will face a day of reckoning, if not in this world, in the world, and to come. And God is going to do it in a way that will display his glory, his majesty, his holiness, that will enhance our ability to worship him for all eternity. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you that as we begin by praying with, same as Moses did, Lord, show us your glory, Lord, that you have showed us your glory in a way this morning that we may not have thought of it and we may not have even given it uh, any consideration until now, Lord, but uh, we thank you for revealing something of yourself to us today that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. And Father, it also causes us to come before you and, and thank you that you have chosen to bestow your mercy upon us, that you are a God of mercy, you are a God of compassion, and that your tender mercies are working every day in every one of us who are, are your children, Lord. And so I do pray as we, in these last weeks, as we've uh, talked about the voice of the martyrs, we've talked about Awana ministries in Africa and, and Gideon ministries throughout the world, Lord. That we do pray for the persecuted church in our land and in our world, Lord. We pray and thank you that your Holy Spirit is with each one. And Father, we pray and thank you that, that you are with them through whatever they are going through. And Father, we pray that uh, as you have mercy upon them and as you strengthen them, Lord, that something of their witness and testimony would be used, and you do use it, Father, to bring others to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that dear mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.